Welcome to Industry Focus, the show that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today we're talking energy and industrials. It's Thursday the 5th of July and we're going to be talking about a few news topics. I'm your host Sarah Priestley and joining me in the studio are two very special guests. uh, Vince Shen, host of the Tuesday Consumer Goods Show and Dylan Lewis, host of the Friday Tech Show. Welcome to the show guys. Happy to be here. I don't know that it's going to be a great industrials discussion, but <laughs> you're it'll here be to a weigh, fun in, show. weigh in your respective knowledge, which, you know, <laughs> uh, this is going to be a fun show for us. I don't know if it'll be a fun show for the listeners, but uh, this is actually my last show as I'm moving to Charlotte, North Carolina. My husband got a job down there. So I pre recorded three episodes, uh, doing deep dives on various topics and answering some listener questions, but this is the last episode I am recording in the studio that's going to go live today. So I thought we we would do a fun show and talk about some news things, uh, big companies like Tesla and Harley Davidson that everybody can relate to and weigh in on. <laughs> Talking America. <laughs> yes, definitely very American. So the first story is that Tesla finally reached its production goal for making 5,000 Model 3s in one week. So the story behind this is that last week Tesla built 5,031 Model 3 sedans. That's its... Um, relatively inexpensive uh, <laughs> Tesla vehicle. It was meant to be priced around 30000 Not sure exactly how that price comes out in the end, uh, but they've missed that deadline twice before, and it's almost a year after they launched the product. Um, in order to do this, they had to put up a tent at their Fremont site uh, where they began a third assembly line. Uh, Musk slept on the floor. Obviously, I'm sure that was very helpful and motivational for everybody. <laughs> I'm sure the cult of Tesla loves that part of the story. I, yeah, it's just my eyes roll so hard when I see that. It's just like, unless you're there, not and bolts attaching to things, then I don't know how helpful you <laughs> You're just are. over people's shoulder at yeah, that point. Yeah. I think this is a storyline where it is worth reading way beyond the headline. Yes, Because definitely. if you just see the headline, you're like, oh, they're on target, right? Yeah. That does not seem to be the case with all the news coverage that I've read about this. There were a lot of puts and takes with how they got to this number. Yeah, definitely. And and one of the key things, Tesla's sort of dream is this automated car line, and that's how they're really differentiating themselves from Ford is that it's heavily robotics-based, their production line. And they built this tent uh, city, which people are calling it, but tent city for the, the GA4, I think, production line. And they built it from parts of a failed conveyor system. And they hired people to move parts around the factory. And I can tell you, having worked in a manufacturing facility, getting parts moved around is the hardest part, probably one of the hardest parts of keeping everything flowing. So I understand why they did this. But my question, um, sort of just having a little bit of a background in this, is I cannot believe this is profitable. This manufacturing process cannot be profitable for them on this vehicle. Um, I also worry that it's not sustainable. So they were talking about how they were working a lot of the machinery in the factories and that they were basically on full clip nonstop so that they could hit this target. And they're pitching this as a good thing where they're like, we're stress testing these mechanics. We want to see what we can get out of them and, you know, what their useful life really looks like. And I look at that, I'm like, you guys are making cars that are going to be going out to market and the expectation is that they're going to have the same performance as these really well-reviewed, expertly crafted cars that you've made in the past. And I think they also cut the number of weld points mm-hmm. on these vehicles. So they're making a lot of manufacturing decisions now that they weren't making 
when these cars first hit the road. Mm -hmm. Is consistency going to be there? I don't know. Well, they could have been over-engineering to a certain degree initially, and that's something that you come across a lot with high-spec products. When they take it to mass manufacturing, it's like, yeah, it would be great for us to have this whole seam bead-welded or whatever, but actually all we need is four points for it to be just as strong. So I understand that, but I completely agree with you on on the kind of pushing it. And, and Musk came out straight after it and said, next goal, 6000 per week. And it's kind of... It, it's kind of as a, from an investor standpoint, it's just you just want them to get to some point of stasis where it's like, we can deliver this. We we give you the assurance um, because every time he comes out with a target, it's almost laughable at this point. It does seem a little unrealistic to me. The big thing you you have to keep in mind here is you see this headline number. They hit their $5,000 5000 uh, target for the one week. And then you keep in mind that the first 12 weeks of the quarter, they average less than 2,000 Model 3s per week. So I don't understand how anybody can look at that single week where you know they're running it day and night and you know, quote-unquote cutting some corners, or at least relative to their prior production practices. And now the next target is, what, for August for 6,000? Mm-hmm. It just... It doesn't seem very sustainable to me. Yeah, yeah, I could tell you, like, I ate five salads this week. <laughs> <laughs> and then if next week, week I go back to eating zero salads, like, what does that do for my long-term health? You know, like, it, yeah. it's an issue of sustainability for me. And I'm, I'm a Tesla shareholder, mm-hmm. and I see them hitting this and really stretching to hit this. And I always worry when I see a company that is being short-termist in how they're reaching goals and setting goals that are kind of setting themselves up to cut corners. And particularly when you're in manufacturing, I think that that is something that is troublesome. I don't love that this is the way that they're building their business as a shareholder, mm-hmm. personally. I also enjoy the fact that you said you had five salads this week when yesterday was the 4th of July. <laughs> that, was a, that was a hypothetical. <laughs> I, I, have not, I wish I had five salads this week. I, I don't look like I have. It was a, it was a lot of liquid, liquid lunches, I imagine, yesterday. It was. Um, yeah. So the next story is Harley Davidson, uh, America's favorite motorcycle company. Uh, shares of Harley Davidson are down around 16% for the year, and the company has got massively embroiled in this US-EU trade tension. So earlier this year, the president announced measures to increase protectionism for various industries, and this was particularly around the steel and aluminum imports, um, and it increased costs for companies. So Trump's tariffs have already increased the cost of an average Harley by 2002. And then the EU announced that it's, that it's imposing higher tariffs in response to this on uh, US products, motorcycles, bourbon, jeans, orange juice, playing cards. Vince particularly enjoyed the playing cards. Neither of us had any clue that playing cards was <laughs> I didn't know that playing cards were a boon of the US economy. <laughs> you look at that basket and you're like, that's a very specific kind of night out and morning after. <laughs> <laughs> you got your bourbon and your your motorcycle, and then the next morning your orange juice. Well, you can see how the EU views Americans <laughs> from this from this one list of uh, of products. But anyway, these retaliatory taxes would cost uh, the company another forty five million, um, and they can in- avoid some of these uh, incurring some of these costs by locating manufacturing and production outside of America which is why they've kind of come to blows with the president. Uh, they're going to locate a assembly plant in Thailand um, just for their EU production. So it won't be they won't be supplying any US motorcycles from this plant in Thailand. And then they're also shutting down a facility in Candice and consolidating that plant with one in Pennsylvania. So there's been a lot of mixed messages around the fact that they're 
giving jobs away abroad because they're closing this uh, site and it's kind of come at a bad time. I think that that site move was already in the works. Um, and they have, to be clear, been assembling. They make a lot of the parts in the US and then they assemble them. And I think Brazil is one of the countries that they do that. So there's a precedent for this, but it's just come at a really bad time. Um, you know, the era of Twitter. <laughs> well, as a matter of macro policy, too, like this is what you very often see with tariffs. It, it's something where it gets imposed and then you have retaliation, a retaliatory measure. Yeah. And, and so a lot of economists are not really sold on the idea of tariffs because it winds up working out to basically zero sum. It, it winds up impacting individual industries very often, but that the the net result is relatively even for both countries. Yeah. Um, so, so that's part of the struggle with all of this is, okay, well, broadly, what's the impact going to be? Is it just that Harley gets kind of raked over the coals for a little while? Is it really all that helpful for the U.S. economy? Well, the issue is, and I can see why they're emphasizing the European market, because uh, Europe, Middle East, and Africa for them, sales rose 7% in Q1. The US has been continually declining in sales. They fell 12% in the first quarter. Um, so it's, as much as it is synonymous with America, it's such a big American brand, their sales are not being driven right now by their home country. And so you can understand from uh, running, a uh, running a company perspective, you have to put your money where uh, the income's coming from. I can. I also just want to add that it seems like a particularly tough situation for shareholders, where the company, the management team, has to deal with this problem that they really didn't have any part in playing in terms of bringing it about, and now you know they have to deal with the twenty two hundred dollars of the extra cost. Um, I think a fool calculated that out to about ninety million dollar hit annually, five to six percent reduction in earnings per share. So that's pretty significant for the investor to keep in mind. And I don't think it should be a surprise that the company, given the fact that they have production facilities in Australia, I think you mentioned Brazil, um, India, and then soon with the new Thailand facility, that they're going to make the right you know, economic business decision to avoid those tariffs from Europe and, and move the the production abroad, regardless of, as you guys have mentioned, the optics and what it means to be this all-American company. It's such a strong brand, too. They have to find a way to leverage that brand. Um, and I, I can understand the, the reason that they're doing this. Also, interesting side note, somebody started, I'm not sure if you followed this, but somebody started a Twitter account pretending to be the CEO of Harley-Davidson and tweeted out this uh, inflammatory tweet that then got something ridiculous, like 600,000 retweets. I think a lot of news outlets reported on it. And it kind of shows you in the era of fake news, they have since created a real Twitter account. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, it's important to read your sources and understand yes. where stuff is coming from. I remember someone had grabbed that tweet and said, like, this has gotten all this love and all this action there's nothing tying this to any public statements. Yeah. You know, this is just like something that someone tweeted and ascribed to the CEO. Like, yeah. let's actually kind of work through this and understand if it's real. Mm -hmm. uh, so the next thing I want to talk about is uh, GE selling healthcare. So anybody that's been listening to the show while I've been doing it <laughs> will know that I've been banging on about GE for a long time. Uh, so on June the on June 26th, CEO John Flannery announced that he's spinning off healthcare business and unloading their ownership stake in Baker Hughes, which is the oil services company that they merged with their own in uh, 2017. That was one of Airmalt's last hurrahs, uh, as it were. Um, so this is essentially the culmination of a year-long strategic review by Flannery, who's the new CEO. Um, in that time, he's ousted a lot of the senior management, he's cut the dividend, uh, he's pl announced plans to shed numerous businesses and has started to do that. 
Um, shares have lost 50% in that time. Something that you are keenly aware of. Yes. It's been, it's been super painful for GE shareholders. Um, so the new GE will focus on the aviation division and its power and renewable energy businesses. And that makes a lot of sense to me personally, if just to kind of <laughs> bias the discussion from the, from the off. I'm just excited to get my GE uh, healthcare shares. And um, it makes a lot of people are talking about, well, why wouldn't you separate aviation from power? Because aviation is pretty strong right now and power is in this kind of protracted down period. Well, actually, they share a lot of manufacturing similarities. You can essentially run those down the same line. It's different quality standards and things like that, but they share a lot of the, the basics. So I can see exactly why they're doing this. Um, and it just seems it's an expected result, but it's positive. Do you think that this is GE signaling that healthcare is kind of worth being hived off, that it is something that will kind of uh, grow into its own and become an increasingly important industry? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they make um, a lot of magnetic imaging machines, I think like MRI machines and things like that. Um, and it's about 16% of sales of GE overall, but it's a huge, it's a big contributor of income. It's a high profitable business. And that's actually where Flannery came from. So he really understands that business. And to me, that's such a good indicator of like, well, if he sees the potential uh, in this space, and you know, with the uh, Internet of Things and what that can really mean for healthcare with AI and all of those, if you if you're kind of following those trends, this is something that you definitely want to pay attention to. And and you look at a lot of big businesses. I mean, there's the conglomerate of Amazon, Berkshire. Uh, mm. Who's the third company? J.P. In that? Morgan. J.P. Morgan deciding to get into healthcare. Um, it's no surprise that with an aging baby boomer population, healthcare spending is going to be going up. Uh, this seems to be riding a lot of coattails, uh, trend-wise, but um, it would make sense to me that the company would want to silo that off and let it become its own distinct thing if they think it's going to be growing out more. Yeah, absolutely. And the way that they're structuring this is they're selling 20% and then they're giving the rest to the sh to shareholders. Um, so I think it's a shareholder-friendly move. Um, and as I said, it was expected, but the stock was up, I think, something like 8% on the news. I think that might be the biggest bump that it had in about three <laughs> years. Um, and it's just, it, to me, it signals a real real divergence of, you know, we're getting away from these big conglomerates. You saw exactly the same thing with Dow DuPont uh, splintering off. Um, and it just it signals a kind of new era of businesses where it's almost this de-conglomerization uh, to uh, invent a word. Um, and it's a de devolving power more to the business units, which I think is something that we really, really have to start seeing. It's funny to me for this to be happening in the industrial space as someone that covers tech. Well, because it's kind of the opposite, right? Increasingly, <laughs> yep. all of these tech businesses, you look at Alphabet, yep. and they're saying, oh, like the conglomerate structure looks awesome. You know, we have, this, we have all yes. these business units that are working in totally different spaces. And, you know, for them, it's, you know, they have all of their Google internet properties, they have YouTube, um, they have Waymo, their driverless cars, they have the Moonshots division, they have all these different things. And I wonder if in 15 years, we're going to be talking about the same thing with them where they're like, oh, yeah, we got to start hiving this stuff off. It doesn't make any sense for us to be all under one umbrella. Yeah. I mean, well, sorry. The parallel that the GE story and all the divestitures are doing, the spinoff specifically, the parallel for me from consumer retail that I always think about in this kind of situation is Procter & Gamble, where they had this massive brand portfolio, and they went through a very wide and systematic process in reducing that to the top performers in the various verticals that they were focused on. So I think it, from that perspective, and though even that turnaround story is kind of in the works still, it does allow, I think, the company with this smaller kind of asset base 
a little bit more nimble, allowed them to go from a very defensive posture, which GE seems to have been in for quite some time now, to a more aggressive yes. stance in the businesses that they remain in. And then for the spinoff itself, for the healthcare business, you know, I think Dylan, you and I have talked about this before, where the the spinoffs from bigger companies of these business units that are doing very well are often very, very good performers as individual stocks. We've seen that with, for example, eBay and PayPal and how much of a winner that's been. So that's definitely one I would encourage listeners to follow along because I think the potential there is a little more certain than the broader uh, broader opportunities for GE once it's done with this entire you know, divestiture process. Yeah, that's a classic Peter Lynch thing okay. is to look for businesses that are being spun out of larger businesses. And the idea there is there's probably a lot of value that isn't totally being realized because all of the results from this business unit are being murked up in the rest of GE and, yeah. and kind of getting <laughs> lost. And so kind of giving it its room to run um, you know, allows a lot of that to be realized. Yeah, and, and I will say GE has been long criticized for uh, selling low and buying high. And if you look back at a lot of their acquisitions, they that's a deserved criticism. Um, this is an instance where I think that they're selling high. Um, and I think if they tried to spin out power right now, they would be uh, selling really low. So, um, yeah, it's just another kind of positive move for the company. Uh, as, a, as a shareholder, I'm patient and happy. <laughs> um, but yeah, the one kind of last few topics that I wanted to touch on just uh, just for fun. Uh, SpaceX said it won't be launching a pair of Taurus to loop around the moon this year. <laughs> Might surprise everybody. <laughs> I like that as a company press announcement, like things yeah. that we aren't doing. <laughs> like I, I would love it if that was like a recurring bit from yep. some PR team. Um, so they've had technical and production challenges, and they're delaying this trip until mi- at least mid-2019. So it was meant to happen this year. Um, but just kind of interesting concept. They need to diversify their business because they've noticed that a 40% drop in launches are predicted next year. Basically, there was sort of a pent-up demand for launching these satellites. And when once you've tapped that now, you've got another sort of 10 to 15-year cycle. Um, so they really do need to crack space tourism to level out those ups and downs. And, and I'm sure that there are enough people that really want to go into space and have millions and millions of dollars just sitting on the sidelines and are, and are happy to spend it. Yep. Um, that's a concerning thought. But I, <laughs> I think it's If I ever reach true. that level, I don't know if I'll be going into space. But No. Yeah, <laughs> definitely not. Um, but SpaceX obviously is uh, a Musk company, synonymous with uh, Mr. Musk. Um, but you can't overlook some of their achievements. Uh, their Falcon 9 has seriously cut prices for launches, uh, and they've made a reusable main stage so they can launch 10 times off the same main stage, which is crazy and uh, something that I think that a lot of other companies are looking to replicate too. Um, one for you, Dylan. Ford is teaming up with uh, Baidu. Did I pronounce that correctly? Heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would hope so. Uh, to develop new technology and services for connected cars. So they're talking about like infotainment systems and self-driving cars and all that kind of stuff. So that's a cool sort of space to watch. Um, Is this you handing me a show idea? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> it's like, oh, I've got this I like cool to do that thing sometimes. you might be interested in. Uh, this, this news doesn't surprise me all that much. Um, in the connected car space, in really in a lot of the future tech space, we're seeing a lot of collaboration. Uh, we're seeing it here in the United States, but 
we're also seeing it with U.S. players that want to work in China mm-hmm. because that is really the only way to enter that market is to have some type of joint venture going with a domestic firm. And so Ford teaming up with Baidu, they're in totally different worlds. You know, Baidu is this search giant. They're really big in data analytics. Ford has the technical know-how. That totally makes sense to me. Yeah, and Ford sales have been declining in China for a long time. So I think this is a pitch to sort of uh, boost their brand recognition in the country and get a few good headlines out there. Hopefully that doesn't portend anything poor for Harley Davidson. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Harley Davidson. Really had a bad run. the one more thing I kind of wanted to mention. Uh, this is this is a very selfish discussion because <laughs> it's something that I would love to happen. Uh, but it's the return of the supersonic airliner. So there's a startup based in Denver called Boom Technology. Don't judge them on their name because I think widely agreed it's terrible. Um, and they're going to fly a supersonic airliner test flight at the end of this year. Um, and it's going to be called Baby Boom because it's a downsized version of what they will eventually release. And the full-size tests are meant to be starting in 2020. So the reason that I'm saying this is a selfish thing is it would cut flights from New York to London from about seven hours, seven and a half hours to three hours and 15 minutes. Uh, San Francisco to Tokyo, five and a half hours instead of 11. Um, you know, you say that's a good thing, Sarah, but you know that that's just going to have your mom asking why you don't come yeah. home more often. <laughs> <laughs> it would. It would. Well, it's 5000 Apparently, it's going to start around $5,000 a ticket. So I think that's a good excuse initially. Um, but yeah, eventually, you know, when I have kids and it's come down finally to a reasonable price, <laughs> just ship them over. <laughs> Uh, I gotta say, I'm. I was really pumped to see this because I remember the Concorde mm-hmm. as a, as a kid, thinking yep. that was really cool. Those haven't been in service for I think Since 15, I think. 15 yeah. years. So I did find it odd that we had achieved this kind of <laughs> milestone in aviation, and then the only plane model that really did it commercially stopped being an active part of these airlines fleets and then nobody was like, hey, let's keep this up. And it makes a lot of sense. I know there's limitations in terms of when they can hit top speeds because they don't want it happening over populated areas, so it can only happen over water, right? And But otherwise, the big thing that I was, when I was reading about the history of the Concorde, that the problem they had was cost of development, cost of operating them. That's why a lot of airlines abandoned them. Cost, um, I found that a round trip ticket from New York to London on the Concorde in the 70s, inflation-adjusted cost $20,000. These wow. trips, 5000 so it's much more affordable. And apparently, that New York-London uh, route was the only profitable route for the Concorde. So it'll be interesting to see if they can bring these costs down, even at a $5,000 uh, ticket price, and they can have multiple profitable routes. Maybe there is more potential for this uh, startup. Mm-hmm. They have a back order of uh, number of 76. Virgin Atlantic has ordered the first 10, and they cost about $200 million a piece. So it's no, it's no, people are really kind of got skin in the game with this. Um, and as I said, like the you were right, exactly right about the Concorde. There were a lot of operational issues with mm-hmm. it, and they had a quite a um, you know infamous crash in the two thousands, and that damaged their reputation too. Um, and they can only fly supersonic over the sea, which kind of makes you wonder what they could do if they can fly <laughs> supersonic over air. Um, but yeah, just interesting to see, interesting thought. As you said, very cyclical. Lockheed Martin is also working on supersonic too. So I'm interested to see what this competition in the in that subset of the industry can really drive costs down to an efficient level. Um, 
if you look at LiDAR technology for self-driving cars, that's come down. That used to be sort of something ridiculous, like 60,000 a set for all the LiDAR equipment. It's now like 6,000. They think that they can get it down to under $1,000. And I can't help but connect this conversation to us talking about Musk twice yes. earlier, right? Where uh, I, I'm a shareholder in Tesla because I buy into his general vision of things. I worry that he is someone who is like a tech futurist and is generally pushing for a certain uh, type of adoption and for certain technology to be available, not necessarily for his company to be the one that's yes. making it most profitably. <laughs> yep. And and so um, you have a lot of people that are doing that, and, and it's awesome for innovation. It brings costs down, right? It, it kind of pushes all these legacy companies to get in on these trends. You have to be you have to be mindful that necessarily they might not have the business models, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, to make it happen and for it to be successful for investors. Yeah, absolutely. And they, this company is always going to have to, if they do decide to float, they're going to have that uh, Concord comparison that they're probably never going to get away from. Um, but that's it from us today. It's been so much fun having you both on the show. So thank you very much uh, for the for the last one, the final hurrah. Um, and thank you to everybody that's listened to me <laughs> over the last year, uh, put up with me. I'm sure that it's going to be an excellent uh, stewardship after I leave. I know that Michael Douglas uh, from The Monday Show is going to be standing in for a little while. Uh, and also a huge thanks to Austin Morgan, uh, <laughs> who mixes the show and who, um, yeah, is just incredibly patient and helpful because he makes me sound a lot smarter than I actually am. Boy, you are buttering him up. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I really don't need to do this for any reason, but, you know, there you go. And he's he's uh, suffering a little from the 4th of July <laughs> holiday, so maybe it's just because I'm feeling sorry for you. Um, but if you would like to get in touch with any of the rest of the team, please feel free to email us at industryfocus@full.com or tweet us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based only on what you hear. Uh, thank you to you both for being on the show. Thank you to Austin. I'm Sarah Priestley. Thanks for listening and fool on.